Good morning, Calvary. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. And today we find our uh, passage in Acts chapter 9, verse 43 to 1048. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. And at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifting him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, 
You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone other of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house, and at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. The word of the Lord. Thank you again. How God is in heaven, he does whatever he pleases. Declare his glory among the nations. May the Father and the Son and the Spirit be honored among us today and among the people of the nations. And may they give grace to our shepherd in his rest period, a period well-earned and deserved. It is good to be with all of you, my brothers and sisters, on today. Let us turn together in prayer and then hear the word of God. Father, we bless your name for allowing us to gather in your presence and to worship you who are holy and mighty, who is our vision, the ruler of all, 
even as we are here today, we ask that your mercy would go forth in Haiti to a people who have experienced again another great ravishing, but this time because of political coup. God, would you make the church there strong and would you cause your kindness to go forth in every way with great compassion and help and aid? Would you strengthen that nation so people can live there in the peace of Christ? And then God would remember those who are in Florida who are still trying to find comfort after having lost their loved ones in the collapse of the tower. Father, we would ask that you would be with all of them and those who are still doing recovery efforts. We pray, God, that the church would be a place of refuge and that the message of Christ could be heard by hearts that have been prepared by tragedy. And then, Lord, we do again ask that you would bring about revival here in Chicago and pour out your spirit upon your believers and the churches here, God, so that righteousness may reign where there are places of violence. God, please do a mighty and awesome work through the gospel and through all of us, God. May you give wisdom to those who are leading in the city so we can make a great curb and dent in all the violence that we see in the city. Now, God, be with us to have power to hear and to obey. Give grace to preach. May the name of Jesus Christ be magnified in us, and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Today we examine a crucial passage in the development of the full message of Acts and the witness of the gospel by the church to the ends of the earth. It is a significant passage as it concerns the healing of the nations, the healing of people from every tribe and tongue and nation and land as Scripture foresees. The conversion of Cornelius marks a change in the ministry of the church and the face of early Christianity. Had this passage been rightly understood, in various periods of Christian history, many conflicts and errors by believers related to racial and ethnic differences may have been minimized, if not avoided altogether, including items like the Crusades, colonialism in Africa, and Dutch reformed support of apartheid in South Africa many incidents of anti-Semitism by the church and the German church's silence during the Holocaust, and of course, slavery in America. Had the church considered the full breadth of this passage, there now also would be less confusion over the fate of sincerely religious people who have never heard the gospel. No one in church would ask, Will God answer the prayers of a sincere unbeliever and send someone to preach the gospel to him or her? No one would wonder if someone could be saved from hell to heaven apart from the gospel. This passage, this story, addresses common ethnic and religious thoughts about our uncommon salvation. Due to the length of this 
passage with which Myra read so eloquently. Allow me to summarize the story and then bring out the truths of which our author speaks. Cornelius, a full-blooded Gentile of Italian descent, is stationed in Caesarea, 31 miles north of Joppa and slightly more than 70 miles from Jerusalem. He is seeking God in the common way of the Jews, but apart from calling on Christ. Unlike the Ethiopian eunuch of Acts 8, Cornelius is not a full proselyte to Jerusalem, but he is a devout God follower or God fearer. This means that he maintained the practices of Judaism to act righteously, give to the poor, and pray. But when they said that in order to sign on the dotted line with the Jewish people as a proselyte, that he would need to be circumcised, he said, God fear is just fine, thank you. <laughs> One day Cornelius gains a vision that God has heard his prayers and received them in a memorial sense, but not a salvific sense. Humanly speaking, God is aware of and remembers this praying man, but this man has no knowledge of Jesus. Cornelius must send for a person named Peter with no promises of what will happen next. Meanwhile, Peter is in Joppa at the home of Simon the Tanner who lives on the outskirts of town. Simon lives there because tanners worked with animal hides and were considered to be unclean by the Jewish people. Peter is in the home of an unclean Jew and he seems to be cool with this. Well, at the tanners, Peter receives his own vision as he prays about eating things that he perceives perceives would defile him. Although he recognizes the voice in the vision as the Lord's voice, he is unwilling to obey the command to eat what seems to him to be unclean or common. But the Lord is doing a work to prepare Peter to rethink common and unclean in terms of how the Lord thinks of what is common and unclean. Men from Cornelius' house meet Peter and lodge with him. This is a significant step for Peter to house Gentiles in the home of a Jew in which Peter is only staying as a guest. The next day, Peter sets out for Cornelius' house and is greeted by this God-fear, a gathered audience, the story of Cornelius' vision, and an opportunity to preach the gospel. Peter does preach the gospel, admitting his own prejudices against the Gentile. He recognizes that Christ, the Lord of all, has no favorites when it comes to salvation. Christ's death on the cross for sin is for Jews and Gentiles of all stripes. And Christ's resurrection from the dead is the only hope of the circumcised 
and the uncircumcised. Christ is the one who provides forgiveness of sins through his name to anyone who believes in him. While preaching the gospel message, Cornelius and the Gentiles believe upon Jesus. The Spirit falls upon them the same way it fell upon Peter and the Jews at Pentecost. This then leads to three truths in the development of the narrative. Here is the first. Common religious practice is not sufficient for salvation no matter how devout or sincere you are. Cornelius is God-fearing. He is so sincere that his whole household follows his practice, yet he is not saved. He is more than agnostic, for he has identified a specific God to worship. He is more than nominally religious, for he practices his belief faithfully. He has more going on for him than those who are religious by cultural identity, as are many believers in America's Bible Belt who have been in the pews since birth and followed their family practices, but do not have a personal relationship with the Lord and assume salvation by their practices. Cornelius has a designer religion in which he can stop short of the requirements for righteousness when the requirements do not meet with his sensibilities, i.e., he may wonder, why in the world would the rite of circumcision make me a better worshiper? Even so, none of Cornelius's practices warrant salvation before the Lord or can provide it. Peter later reports that Cornelius came to be saved upon this visit. Paul will emphasize in his writings that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. Several years ago, I got in trouble with a friend for criticizing a well-known radio pastor's teaching on salvation. This radio pastor taught that for the person outside of a region where the gospel had been preached, the Lord would create a means to accept a sincere seeker's earnest but ill-informed pursuit of God. I used the word heretic, which cast dispersion on everything this person had said and done. My friend, a pastor himself, tried to clean up what the radio pastor had said, and he chided me for my words. But, well, in the end, I took ill words from some who thought I was being an arrogant young professor because I could not budge on what I had said. The Apostle Paul teaches that no one seeks God. 
everyone suppresses the knowledge of God. Only the gospel reveals the way of salvation. Only the message of the death of Jesus to stop the wrath of God against our sins and his resurrection to stop death from keeping us in the grave reveals the path to God. God is not obligated to save any so-called seeker because there are no such persons. Religious seekers are looking for human religious practices in which they might feel satisfied that they have pleased God or found the path of, to the way of peace. God, however, obligates himself to save anyone who seeks Jesus alone for salvation. If you are listening to this message as one who is spiritual but cannot get with Christianity or has religious practices that you think are needed to reach God because faith in Christ is not sufficient alone, you are in the same position as Cornelius. Cornelius needed Peter to preach Jesus to him. No rite performed upon you, no pilgrimage, no meditative practice of tranquility, and no philanthropic service merits anything before God. Jesus is the only one who has been sinless and can offer you his perfection freely so you might be pleasing to God. Jesus did seek God, and he is the only one who sought God, and he is the only one that can give us the victory of seeking God in perfection. Second, common thoughts about race hinder the gospel. Common thoughts about race hinder the gospel. Here I am using common slightly differently than the first use in the first point, while also borrowing from that first sense, for the two senses are not mutually exclusive. The first sense of the word in the previous point means traditional or earthly or acceptable. In that sense, Cornelius had a common religious practice. He had an earthly or a traditional or an acceptable religious practice, acceptable to people. In that same sense of the word, many of us came into adulthood thinking about people of various ethnicities, castes, classes, country, and regions as common. A second sense of common often combines with the first sense in our thinking about matters of race. It is the sense associated with that person at your job who has to drop an F-bomb in response to everything. You know who I'm talking about, including responding to words like good morning. That person responds, what makes it a good bleep, 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 bleeping morning? Wipe that bleep, bleep, bleeping smile off your face. And after you say, the Lord bless you today, <laughs> you leave thinking, why do some people have to be so common? In that sense, common is something base, beneath us, and almost uncivilized to us. 
In that sense and more, the Gentiles were common to the ancient Jews. They were ceremonially unclean, just as unclean as foods that would defile them. So in developing distance from Gentiles to keep from becoming unclean before God, the ancient Jewish people began to see their ethnicity, their Judaism, as superior to the Gentiles, and they came to view the Gentiles as being inferior to the Jews based upon their ethnicities and not simply by their religious practices. What actually made the Gentiles defiling and common according to the law of God and Jewish common thinking had been taken away at the cross of Christ. The cross radically changed the approach to God so that Jews and Gentiles had equal access through Jesus. For Peter to keep thinking of the Gentiles as common was not about spiritual relationships, but about earthly relationships. Simply put, it was an ancient form of racism. Yet Peter does overcome his thoughts about what is common and proclaims the gospel as a message that does not show respect of persons. In verse 35, he says, but in every nation, anyone who fears him, God, and does what is right is acceptable to him. In verse 38, Peter says, Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. In verse 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Verse 43, to him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. All of us have struggled at some point with warped ideas related to race. If you feel that my statement about our universal struggle is overgeneralizing, think about your initial thoughts concerning who you would like to see your children marry. Your initial thoughts when I say words like landscaper, terrorist, gangbanger, drug dealer, or owns a trailer home. Your and my second and third thoughts might be neutral and baptized, but that's after we have self-corrected. If we do not overcome all of these thoughts, we will have difficulty reaching others for Christ. But there's grace even for this. It took five conversions before Cornelius's conversion for the church to be ready to receive Cornelius. The Samaritans, the Ethiopian eunuch, Paul, 
the disciples in Jerusalem in their thinking about Paul and Peter in his thinking about the unclean and the common were conversions that had to take place before Cornelius's conversion. The Lord used every one of those conversions to be strategic in his plan to welcome in Cornelius. The Lord knew that fallen hearts of people would not have taken in Cornelius unless they saw one that they could accept into the church, half Jews, Jewish proselytes, and a murderous Christian hater in Paul. Two, Peter could stay in the home of an unclean tanner on the outskirts of town and invite in Gentiles in a delegation to stay in that tanner's home overnight, even though Peter is Jewish. And three, Peter has visions from God directly to indicate that there are no uniquely common and unclean people. It took all of that before Cornelius could come in. God did a work in the hearts of Peter and the Jewish delegation to overcome sinful understandings of who is acceptable to God. The writer portrays the Lord doing this as Peter was praying in line with being obedient to the commission to be witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. The grace is that God took the time to strategically overcome their hearts. Three, uncommon to the world is the way the body of Christ is united by the Spirit. There are three initial results in response to Peter's proclamation of the gospel to this man and his guests that Peter once thought of as common. First, there is repentance from being a God-fearer to faith in Christ. The last thing Peter proclaims in 1043 is, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. It is while he is saying this that the Spirit of God falls upon those who heard the word, it says in 1044. Later, Paul will write in Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing the word of God preached, and we have already seen this pattern in the book of Acts. Acts 10, therefore, is showing with certainty that Cornelius was a sinner in need of the message of Jesus. His sincere, God-fearing worship was empty of the righteousness of God. But through the preaching of the gospel, a full-blooded Gentile and many Gentiles present with him become believers in Christ. The gospel message is just that exclusive. Being a nice person with your private spirituality is not enough to gain salvation before God because it is not resting in the Son of God to meet the requirement of eternal life on your behalf. 
Second, the new believers receive filling of the Holy Spirit in their initial baptism by the Spirit. As the church is still brand new, we see things like tongue speaking in Acts. The tongue speaking was just evidence of their faith. For how else would anyone have known these Gentiles have come into faith by the same means and equal footing as the Jewish believers unless their experiences were the same as the ones experienced at Pentecost? So that we do not end up with one church for the Jews and another for the Gentiles who were God-fearing, and yet another for the godless, magical arts-practicing Gentiles we are going to encounter in Acts 16 through 19, the Lord will have three and only three episodes of speaking in tongues as evidence of the presence of the Spirit in the book of Acts. Yet... Even if someone disagrees with this interpretation, welcoming a modern-day tongue-speaking brother or sister into our fellowship is not a problem because we both will allow love for the other to prevail over interpretive disagreement on a matter that is not one of orthodoxy. Once more, even if... Someone holds another view. You know who you are out there, by the way. And it comes into our fellowship. That will not be a problem because we both will allow love for the other to prevail over an interpretive disagreement that is not a matter of orthodoxy, says a person who signs the Moody Bible Institute doctrinal statement and position statements annually without mental or emotional reservation, including the statement on signed gifts as a sensational matter, because what I believe in practice and the reception of others in love are not contradictory. They are workings of the grace of God. The presence of the Spirit mysteriously uniting the Gentiles into the church occurs as it did with the Jewish believers. This working of the Spirit should be just as amazing to us as it was to the Jewish people who are present with Peter. It should be very exciting for us. Remember, it is we who are the ones who are the Gentiles. We are the ones who are outside of what the Jewish people knew. We are the ones who Paul describes as being apart from the covenants, apart from the patriarchs, apart from the promises, and without the knowledge of God. He says so in Romans 9 and Ephesians 2 and 4. It is an amazing thing that the Holy Spirit has included all of us in the plan of God because we are Cornelius. We are the ones who owe the ancient Jewish people a spiritual debt. Third, the new Gentile believers receive water baptism, the outward grace that portrays what has taken place within the believer. The baptism the new converts receive is Christian. It is in Jesus' name for all those who have believed. In 
baptism, the death and resurrection of Christ, the believer's death and resurrection with Christ, and the hope of the dead in Christ to rise from the grave go on public display for everyone to see. Along with all else that Pastor Gerald has taught us about this rite, this ordinary means of maturing believers, baptism allows the Jewish believers to welcome the baptized Gentile believers into the church as people also baptized in Jesus' name. Luke's point in the portrayal of these first three results is that in every way, Gentiles and Jews come into faith the same way and are in the church with the same status, that of sinners who have found faith in Jesus. Here's how we should respond to Acts 10. First, for believers... There are no common people in the world. For we who name the name of Christ, there are no common people in the world. In order to develop this point of application, I want to draw on extended quotes, extended quotes, that means they're long, <laughs> from two Christian statesmen of the 20th century who wrote eloquently on refusing to see people as common. The first is C.S. Lewis, which you probably guessed, and his No Ordinary People quote. In The Weight of Glory, he writes, The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Lewis goes on to say, nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of the kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Lewis concludes, 
And our charity must be real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parries merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. No one is ordinary or common in any sense, Lewis says. Everyone is going to glory or to hell, and we should be concerned for everyone to go to glory and feel the weight of this like a load of bricks laid heavy on us to carry. Rightly, we marvel at billionaires racing into space this morning, and we weep at 101 people being shot near us in one weekend, and 19 of them being killed. In horror, we watch a building come down due to a structural error, and we see workers move from a status of rescue to recovery. As we do these things, and in process, as we are talking gardening or HOA rules with our nearest neighbors, we must think of our duty toward them as sacred and holy, as holy as participating in the Lord's Supper, says Lewis, which we do gladly and eagerly. The thought of not participating in the Lord's Supper during the pandemic provoked feelings in us that we never had before. How can we go without the Lord's Supper for so long? Someone please make it possible for us to take the Lord's Supper remotely. Lewis says, we should have that same almost visceral concern for the eternal destiny of every person among us. Francis Schaeffer provides the second extended quote, saying this, Our attitude toward all men should be that of equality because we are common creatures. We are of one blood and kind. As I look across all the world, I must see every man as a fellow creature, and I must be careful to have a sense of our equality on the basis of this common status. We must be careful in our thinking not to try to stand in the place of God to other men. We are fellow creatures. Schaefer says, and when I step from the creature-to-creature relationship into the brother and sisters in Christ relationship within the church, how much more important to be a brother or sister to all who have the same father? Orthodoxy, says Schaefer, to be a Bible-believing Christian always has two faces. It has a creedal and a practicing face. And Christ emphasizes that that is to be the case here. Dead orthodoxy is always a contradiction in terms, and clearly that is so here. Schaefer concludes, to be a Bible-believing Christian demands humility regarding others in the body of Christ. For Schaefer, 
To be orthodox, to be of the truth, of one with sound doctrine, means to treat everyone equally, both outside the church and inside the church. To do otherwise, says Schaefer, is to stand in the place of God. Once we come into the body, humility toward everyone else is the order of the day. Otherwise, our creed and orthodoxy mean nothing. May the Lord give us grace to approach all persons with humility of mind, gentleness of speech, and meekness of heart. Second, we must remain open to uncommon participation in what the Lord is doing to reach people with the mercy of Christ. We need to be open to God's calling to go among uncommon people away from what we now call home. Do not think to yourself that you cannot do this unless health, legal status, or responsibilities to care for another person bind you to the Chicago region. Age only is a factor if one of those other things are a factor, which they are for many of our seniors. The Lord might not be calling one of us to leave our country, but he might be calling you to move geographically in Chicagoland or he might be calling you to stay put where you are. He might call someone to live in Oak Park, Austin, Berwyn, or Uptown, or he might call you to stay there if you are already there. But as we pray for the salvation of people of all nations, both near in Chicagoland and in faraway places, we must keep our hearts open to the Lord asking us to participate in their salvation in uncommon ways, in uncommon times of prayer, uncommon giving, uncommon residential geography, uncommon yet holy relationships with our children, uncommon uses of our skills, education, talents, and vacation times, uncommon gift giving, and even uncommon hospitality. I can't imagine what it would be like for you to be a guest in my home, have unbelieving friends from out of town show up to visit you, and then you invite them to stay at my house with you because that's what Peter did here. Did you even think to ask me whether or not I wanted to send up my grocery bill or my utility bills for that month? Did you even think to ask whether or not I want someone else's stinky feet on my couch? I might not even want your stinky feet on my couch. Yet, that is the very thing Peter did in the home of this tanner. And that with complete strangers who were Gentiles. Christian welcoming of believing or unbelieving strangers in their home, except heretics, is prescriptive, as all of the New Testament hospitality and anti-xenophobic texts reveal. Third, as said in many sermons in this series, we must continue to pray for the Lord to reach all peoples. 
During past Olympic seasons, some of our international mission agencies have invited us to pray for the countries we see represented on our screens during the games. So we're not just observing the games and forgetting that there are people in all those nations who are in need of Christ. Pray. We have to continue to pray for the Lord to reveal Christ among unbelievers in all of these nations, to fill believers with his spirit, and to strengthen the church. We want to see in all countries, including the U.S., more than medal winners. We want people of every nationality from every country on this planet to call on Christ, to be full of the spirit of God, to come to the waters of baptism, to go proclaim the gospel to all all people and to live with all of one's might for Jesus Christ. We want to see people in whom Christ's victory means new life and salvation unto God. There is a fourth and final result of the Gentiles hearing the message of the gospel and coming to faith in this passage. The new believers welcome the believers in Peter's delegation into their homes. They immediately practiced the faith. I suspect that they also immediately began learning the truths of their faith and the story of Christ too because they stay for a few days. And I suspect they might even learn that all of redemptive history shows that God intended to include Gentiles in his plans as they have a few days to discuss these things. I can see their eyes lighting up as these Gentiles hear the Lord told Abram through you, all people shall be blessed. Their hearts probably filled up with peace as they read of Ruth, the excluded Moabitess from the Moabite people, birthing a son in the line of David. Think of the joy they have by the time they reach Psalm 68 and they read, Noble shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. They probably stood up and said, that's us. When Peter told them, he heard the Savior say, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people, all people, all people to myself. Jesus came and did something really uncommon so that common people like us could have life in him. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for the great kindness that is ours in Christ. You did nothing common because you do not see us as common. You see us through the blood of your son and his resurrection from the dead. God, do a work in our minds and hearts and souls so that no one is common to us, but that everyone is someone whose eternal destiny weighs on us, weighs on us, so that we approach in great love and welcoming, and then once we're brothers and sisters, embrace in humility and meekness and gentleness. Thank you for Jesus, Lord. 
Thank you for sending the Son for us. Thank you for pardoning our sins in him. Thank you that it did not matter where we resided, how we were born, that it doesn't matter what country we were from. It did not matter the ethnicity, oh God. You sent your Son for all, and everyone who believes on that name shall be saved. We bless you for sending Jesus for us. It's in his name we pray, amen.